Welcome to Leader You by Black River Performance Management, where we believe work should fuel the human spirit, not drain it. In this leadership podcast, we will dive into the lived experiences of people flourishing in today's workplace and beyond. Join us to hear real-life examples of experiences from our own lives and from the leaders we know and trust. Successful organizations are dependent on people being competent in their job. To prepare people to do the work, we must prepare them according to the skills, knowledge, and abilities required for the job correctly and consistently. One of the services Black River offers is evaluating employee and candidate competencies. Our 25 competency assessment focuses on the soft skills, or what we like to call them, essential skills. Our competency assessment is used for more accurate hiring practices as well as for staff development. Every organization could use these competencies to ensure an individual's skills match the soft skills required by the job, to nurture the right talent, to improve productivity, and to develop dynamic leaders. For a sample of the 25 leadership competencies, definitions, and assessment, email us at info at blackriverpm.com. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Leader You podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing a dear friend of mine, Dr. Michelle Bennett. She serves as a faculty in interdisciplinary studies and bachelors of applied science and university ombud person at Boise State University. She has 16 years of experience as a communication faculty and six years as a department chair. Her academic training in interpersonal communication, listening, conflict management, emotional intelligence, and public speaking prior to higher education, Bennett spent 20 years in professional communication roles in a variety of industries. She also volunteers and as an interviewing and public speaking coach to youth. Bennett earned her bachelor's and master's of arts in communication and her PhD in education with the emphasis on leadership from the University of Idaho. Thank you, Michelle, for being on the podcast today. I'm excited. Hi, Angie. So excited to have you here and discuss communication and um, understanding others. We're actually going to be talking about interpersonal skills in part one, and then part two, talking more about conflict management, which I know you are an expert in. So thank you. Do you want to share a little bit of your journey and your story as to how you got into this role and got into helping others so much and coaching youth and everything? Yes. It's my pleasure to be here, Angie. You know, I admire you so much and your background and all that you do for others and helping to elevate and cultivate skills and help all of us grow. I've been impacted by your work as well. So a little bit about my background story. Uh, Actually, I'm an introvert uh, naturally, but performatively, I can be an extrovert. And it was really due to my mother had a very strong personality. She still does. And so I remember that awkward time when we all go through when we're about middle school. And I was uh, involved in my first speech and it was nerve wracking. And I said, I'm never going to communicate with anyone ever again after that traumatic experience. And luckily, my mother said, yes, you are. As a matter of fact, you're going to sign up for speech and debate and theater and public speaking and everything. And so it allows those of us who are less outgoing when we're young 
and maybe more introverted to actually flourish because I find that everything we do related to communication requires that we engage in practice and eventually we become more competent in those areas. So really that's how it started for me. And then I had a scholarship to Boise State as an undergraduate on the forensic team, which now everybody thinks is CSI Miami, but it's actually public speaking and debate. So I went through that and then went out into corporate America and worked in Denver and Los Angeles and Portland, and then came back to raise my children in Idaho. And I'm really thankful I did. So it's very exciting. I'd always wanted to help others. And so an opportunity came 16 years ago to pursue my graduate education and begin to teach. I had thought about teaching kindergarten, honestly. I think kindergarten is the time when you can really impact young people. Mm-hmm. You start developing their competence and their communication and their way they approach others interpersonally, and they deal with conflict. Because as you know, children adapt to attachment style by the time they're five years old. So what a great time. But then YC State hired me and I thought, well, I guess I can teach college. So that's what I've been doing for the last <laughs> 16 years. And I, I love teaching interpersonal communication. All of my students really find it valuable to their relationships. So today I'm happy to talk about our more intimate relationships and interpersonal or work relationships, family communication. Really, they're all very similar, but our disclosure is different, clearly, because of the context of those relationships, or hopefully it is for doing a good job. Yeah. Well, I love the idea of diving into the workplace and a little bit of family, because I suspect everybody here, when they're trying to learn how to improve some of their competencies, I think we all have two different you know, arenas we live in. One is the workplace and one is at home. And while you might be Mm -hmm. thriving in one, you may not be thriving as well in another in those relationships. And oftentimes it does have to do with communication, Um, poor communication, lack of communication. Um, What are some of the things that you see? I agree 100% with you. And really in both family communication and in business communication, we really have a lot at risk because those are important relationships for us. Mm -hmm. And so understanding how to approach people interpersonally is really important. There are a couple of takeaways I'd like to leave everybody with that I think are helpful. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna talk about conflict shortly and really interpersonal and conflict management are very related. And so you'll hear some crossover between the two. But if, if you haven't read the book, Crucial Conversations, I urge everyone to do so. Mm-hmm. It's really the interpersonal quick handbook that will help you out as well. So let me tell you about three aspects of interpersonal communication that I find very helpful, pragmatic, and that are, they're not really easy to incorporate into your life, but they're simple, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. because we are all conditioned to approach communication the way that we normally do every single day. And this requires a concerted effort to change some of those habits. So Let's start by talking about interpersonal communication is really also called dyadic communication, and it's the interaction of two people in their communication. So what do we need to focus on to enhance our interpersonal communication? First, we need to uh, avoid avoidance, if you will. I know that sounds redundant, but a lot of times we're uncomfortable 
approaching situations that make us nervous, which we'll talk more about in, in the conflict management. But even in our day-to-day -day relationships, we don't want to rock the boat. So a lot of times we'll go to our normal tendency to not say anything or not express our value or the values of others. But it's really important that we do so. And in crucial conversations, the first thing that I would suggest you highlight is the use of pronouns. So many of you may be familiar with the use of pronouns. We have a tendency in individualistic cultures to be really focused on ourselves and then others in a, in a kind of competitive way, even if we have a close relationship. And so that causes us to use, I feel this way or this is mine and you, you, you. When we have a conversation with another person interpersonally, starting off by you as a pronoun, automatically creates a defensive nature with the other person. You can even think about children with family communication. We say, you need to do your homework. You need to clean your room. You need to do X, Y, Z, you, you, you. And after a while, they don't listen. They just become defensive. And so the same is true of work. People don't want to really mess up. We all want to succeed and do well. So how we can rephrase and create better communication interpersonally is to use pronouns I and we. And I know, Angie, you're familiar with this. So mm -hmm. for example, with children or a peer at work or a subordinate in a leadership role saying this relationship or our work is very important to me. I'm using the word me. How can we work together to figure out who's going to take out the trash? Who's going to take on the responsibility of this report or this research or whatever is, is on the plate at that time? And allowing that person to have a voice in that decision making and taking ownership usually ends up to a better uh, end product mm -hmm. and better collaboration in that. Or let's say there's tension and you feel tension or hostility from a coworker towards you. You read their nonverbal communication, something is different than it normally is, and you're feeling like maybe they're unhappy with you, or maybe you're having an imagined story in your head that they're unhappy with you, but they're unhappy because they have things going on in their personal life, or they have other um, stressors at work, or maybe their car broke down. But the only way we know for sure, rather than making it up in our mind, is to have a conversation. So I would say, uh, I really care about our relationship and uh, our productivity or our friendship or whatever the relationship is. I'm feeling today as though there's something going on. Would you like to talk about it? Mm -hmm. So I'm not putting them on the spot and saying, you need to tell me what's going on. Mm -hmm. What's going on? We do that a lot with spouses, parents, children, where we just want to know and cut to the chase because we're all busy. And again, we're in that competitive environment. So I'm the parent, you're the child, I'm your spouse, you know, answer me, whatever it is. And it comes across as demanding and putting somebody on the spot. So rather, would you like to talk about it? It also gives that other person the opportunity to say, I'm not ready to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I would like to share this information. However, I'm just not ready. And that allows us to back off and not pursue that. Is there anything I can help with? Mm -hmm. I care about how you're feeling. What can I help you with? Mm -hmm. And so you're asking open-ended questions, which also doesn't pigeonhole the other person 
and to responding to your question specifically that may be off target from how they're feeling. Or they may just say, I didn't get a lot of sleep. I just got back from vacation. So I may appear as though I'm off today, but I'm actually feeling pretty good deep within myself and I'm ready to perform at a high level. Mm-hmm. So again, it's about using that I and we mm-hmm. and trying to avoid you. It is more difficult than it sounds it when is. you begin to practice. And so consider that. The other important area of crucial conversation and interpersonal in general is to know that we need to keep ourselves safe and we need to keep the other person safe. And we do that by ensuring that we're mentally safe and we're physically safe. So I wouldn't want you to engage in those conversations if you didn't feel physically or mentally safe. That's also the time when somebody approaches you. I would say, right now I'm feeling like I'm not ready to have this conversation, which is the opposite of somebody else telling you they're not ready. So I would say, I'm not ready. But we don't want to just give people the silent treatment because silent treatment is silence is the most powerful nonverbal communication. Mm -hmm. And so it can really leave us feeling poorly. So rather, I take the time to say, this is important. I do want to share this. However, I'm not mentally ready to share it but I promise I'm going to get back to you. And this can even happen during conflict when we talk about it in a heated moment. So obviously, if you're physically unsafe, you need to just get out of that situation. Mm -hmm. So those are the two big. When you talk about mental safety, are you talking about psychological safety? Kind of. Yes, I am. Thank you for clarifying. And I like one of the things that you brought up is oftentimes when someone is communicating non-verbally and we're reading them, often we're making it mean something that it doesn't mean. Mm-hmm. I'm guilty of that. I've, I've, I've done that before where somebody seems like they're aloof or they don't care, but realistically, when you find out what actually is going on and you ask them, you find out that there's something else going on in their world and it really isn't about you. I think that's one of the things where we oftentimes don't get enough clarification. I agree. And assume. But I think you bring up a good point too. The the third probably most important thing in my hierarchy of most important interpersonal communication uh, strategies is to become an empathetic and good listener. And that is really difficult in our current 21st century society that is so digital. Uh, you know that multitasking is a fallacy. Mm-hmm. Although we remember back when we were starting our careers, you had to have multitasking on your resume or cover letter to be okay. Yeah, this is a good candidate. But we can only focus on one thing 100% of the time mm-hmm. or 100% of our focus. And so for multitasking, which happens a lot, people are on their phone and they might be having Netflix on and they're also on their computer and maybe they're making dinner at the same time and talking to their family. There's just no way that you can focus on what others are sharing with you mm-hmm. unless you focus completely on them. Mm-hmm. And so that is a skill that is probably lacking the most, I think, in business and in our uh, families and interpersonal communication. So it's taking away everything around us and caring enough about that person and that relationship to focus and listen. 
And then paraphrasing for understanding, you brought up a great point about the interactions and us making assumptions. There's a communication theory called imagined interaction theory that is that exact. So we go into a situation, we perform or we communicate with people, and then we leave and we start undressing what happened and how we performed. And we're usually harder on ourselves than we are giving ourselves grace. Mm -hmm. And the same is true of others. And so we can blow it out of proportion completely and stew on it and lose sleep and get all huff and puff. When we find out the truth, it's not that big a deal. I've seen that a lot in the workforce where people just don't communicate and listen mm -hmm. and ask questions. So it's when we paraphrase, we don't want to parrot, as you know. So I don't want to say, oh, Angie, you just said X, Y, Z, and that's exactly what you said. That's going to seem like I'm awkward, mm -hmm. uh, which would be awkward. But rather, when I'm listening, this is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm interpreting you to say, am I right? Mm -hmm. because we don't live inside of each other, right? So we understand signs and symbols and language differently, each of us. Mm -hmm. If I say, think about an apple, I have students often when I ask that question, some think about a red apple, some think about a Fuji apple, some think about a yellow apple, some think about their iPhone, some think about their computer. Well, if we're communicating and something is that simple, one of the first words we learn when we're a little person, right? And we're so far off. Imagine when we start adding complexity to that messaging and how far off we can be. So listening and then asking questions when it's appropriate, not because you're grilling them, but you're trying to clarify your understanding and meaning are really, to me, the most important uh, ways to build empathy and caring and a relationship interpersonally. Yeah, it's some emotional intelligence skills, isn't it? too. Sure is. Understanding yourself, you're being aware of how you're coming off and how you're interacting with the people in, as individuals. Um, as I think about that, many people probably don't know what an ombuds person does. So maybe you could explain what your role in that is and how you assist people with their interpersonal skills and some of the conflict management things that come your way too. Yes, absolutely. This is a good segue to conflict management, actually. Uh, there are different avenues, if you will, around conflict management. We know conflict is when somebody shares a resource or of some sort. It could be a time resource. It could be money. It could be food. It can be whatever. But you're interrelated, so you can't just walk away. You have to... Uh, have some solvency around that resource and so by the very nature when we don't agree on how that should occur it creates a situation where there's conflict so we can have little conflicts and we can have enormous conflicts and there are professional mediators who formally work with people who are in conflict to help them resolve it there are arbitrators who take the place of attorneys in the court system and they resolve based on listening to the case without attorneys and judge. And then there is an informal path to conflict resolution or at least coaching, and that's an ombud, O-M-B-U-D. So it's interesting, if you look up ombud, they, uh, most ombuds belong to the International Association of Ombud, and there's a certification process. 
And so we have four pillars and basically the stakeholders in the organization where we're an ombud can come and share with us when they have conflict. They can even come if they need information, a policy or something, but usually it's surrounding conflict and they don't want to formally report it through formal channels and they just want somebody to talk to who understands. Mm -hmm. So the four pillars are we're confidential, so we never share any information. We're also independent, which means we're not part of the organization per se in terms of having an oversight person or supervisor who oversees us. Instead, we follow the International Ombuds Association Code of Ethics, and we're also um, impartial. So if we call our people who come to see us visitors, and when a visitor comes to see us, they're going to give us their side. But that doesn't mean that we know the whole story because we don't have everyone involved. And at this point, we're not mediating. So we will listen and then we provide options for them, the menu of options. Mm -hmm. So we have to know the organization well. We have to know policy well. We have to know ways to approach conflict and have these crucial conversations with stakeholders. So a lot of times they'll just coach us. They're very fearful of conflict. They don't want repercussions from it or backlash. And they don't want it to be reported formally, but they want it resolved. And so we'll actually coach and do role-playing with many of our visitors. And then um, finally, we are, um, let's see, I gave you independent, right? Mm -hmm. I gave you confidential. And so we don't keep any of our notes okay. or anything. We uh, shred them, which if you go into mediation or you go into legal arbitration, that does not occur. The notes are saved. So we're really an informal group where we're just there to support people. Faculty? And we see or, a or, lot of people. Or is it anyone or fa faculty in, an, in a higher ed? It was faculty in uh, Boise State. But as of January, we're also available for uh, classified and professional staff to see us as well. There's three of us. But it's interesting, if you look around the world, most countries and federal governments and large institutions, banks, large nonprofits have ombuds because they found that people becoming disgruntled and seeking uh, outcomes that are legal or leaving organizations is very costly. Mm -hmm. And so we're the informal person that can help with that stress and conflict and hopefully help the people to resolve it without it becoming uh, worse. Absolutely. One of the things that we see um, in working with lots of organizations and coaching um, is that it is this under, is actually having difficult conversations, crucial conversations, any of these, these, this is where one of the biggest gaps that we see. And mm -hmm. it's, it's literally the conversation has not been had or a behavior has <coughs> been allowed to have happen for too long. And then it gets into the accountability piece where they haven't been held accountable for the behavior. So sometimes it, it starts out with just letting, you know, like avoiding the conversation, like you said, or not having the difficult conversation and then the behaviors become worse and especially yes. when, when it's, let's say, a middle manager, and then they have, let's say, 10 people report to them, and they allow this behavior to happen for so long, mm -hmm. then the rest of the staff starts to go, oh, this is how it's going to get handled, or it's not going to get handled. So then 
they start to not care, and then then the culture starts to shift. So these are two really important pieces in culture, um, being able to have difficult conversations, and it's a skill that can be developed. Yes, absolutely can be developed. Back to my parents. <laughs> so I don't know. We all have uh, a way that as we attach growing up, uh, you talk to early childhood development experts and children are uh, have obtained their way that they attach to others by the time they're five. And that's based on interactions with their primary caregivers. And so why am I bringing this up? Because it also links to the way that we naturally approach conflict. But as you mentioned, just like emotional intelligence, conflict management is part of emotional intelligence, and it can be approved even into adulthood, mm -hmm. but it takes a concerted effort to change our behavior. And so when I was growing up, my parents uh, did not want my sibling and I to experience conflict in our home. So whenever they had any tension, they would leave our proximity and, and resolve the conflict. They're almost married 60 years now. But what they taught us is that we didn't know how to deal with conflict. Mm. Because we didn't have an example of what it looked like to resolve conflict mm -hmm. because they didn't want us to see it. And so I naturally became a conflict avoider, which is not good uh, when I was young. Fortunately, I became a communication major and then I went on to earn my graduate degrees and I took a lot of conflict management and then I taught conflict management. And so I realized that really, who was I hurting when I avoid conflict? I'm hurting myself because eventually I'm gonna probably explode because I never have input into a situation. So I'm always losing. Mm -hmm. And I'm also reducing uh, what I can provide to the team because I'm not voicing my opinion. So I'm hurting others and I'm hurting myself. And when we start putting it into those contexts, can we see that we're actually diminishing the value in an organization by avoiding conflict and not dealing with things and that we're robbing our peers or those who we lead of being able to create a positive culture where they feel safe to be able to folk, you know, approach conflict and know that they're not gonna be retaliated against. Uh, I think it, it takes it out of the very personal avenue of I need to protect myself to I'm really obligated. I'm really, it's, it's very important in my leadership that I create a culture where people can share and not hold it personally against other people. You know that because you're an expert in EQ mm -hmm. and we constantly remind people to ask for feedback and be thankful for feedback. So if you also incorporate that into culture, then it starts to set that model. It also requires back to our interpersonal that leaders listen, even at the mid-level. Mm -hmm. I think being a mid-level leader is the most challenging mm -hmm. because as you know, my doctoral dissertation was about this very thing, uh, having dialectical tension or opposing tension between those who we lead and those who we follow who are our senior leader. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes the senior leadership comes up with a change or a way they want to approach something that the people who we're leading don't agree with. Mm -hmm. And so how do we make decisions in that conflict and that tension that are ethical and that we're watching out in a transformative, authentic way 
to help our people grow and to build that positive culture. And that requires that no matter how uncomfortable we are, that we work on our conflict management approach so that we know what our, our people who we're leading are doing and how they're feeling, which also requires that you don't sit in the office and act like a manager, but you're actually a leader. So you're developing people and providing that. Yeah, I love that. Not sitting in an office, but actually out of there working with people. We, we like to say even sitting with them, um, getting down at their level, because we always have, have the positional uh, power, but trying to diminish that power mm-hmm. and actually really listen to the person and, and get to know them on an individual level. So when you think about interpersonal skills or getting to know your team, what are some tips that you have for new mid-level managers to really get to know their team? You know, we use the tools that you and I are familiar with. We we went through a yeah. leadership program where we use DISC and emotional intelligence and, and understanding other people. But what are just some basic questions that you think mm-hmm. might be helpful um, that people could use on the daily? Yes. Well, there's a couple of things that I would suggest. First, I'm going to talk about power because you brought that up. So I think there's power to others mm-hmm. and there's power over. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, and I, I really believe it's from insecurity and also being in an individualist culture where we compete, but mostly insecurity is once we reach that level, mid-level leadership or greater, is it comes with power and people equate that with um, prestige or uh, other external or intrinsic rewards. But really it's not because if we act like we need to have power over other people, then it starts to diminish their ability to have a voice. Mm -hmm. And so through my lens of uh, authentic transformational leadership, I approach and I suggest people do, of course, this is my bias. We all have bias, but I want to enable people who I lead to find their best life, to find their best work. One, because I think it's ethical too, because I care about people. But if you want to look at the bottom line and you're a person on desk who's a compete, the big voice, you will have better results to your bottom line also, mm-hmm. if you empower others. I almost think of it as how could I work myself out of my job so that everybody on my team is so awesome and they're able to have such great competency and skills because if they work me out of my job, then I can go and do something else or grow in the company and they can grow too. Mm-hmm. They can have my job. Yeah. So then it elevates everybody on the team. So one is that I want to empower mm-hmm. rather than have powering over. And I think it's really important that as leaders, we reflect on that and we're not kidding ourselves because a lot of times people don't even uh, realize how they're behaving as leaders when they're trying to utilize their power over. Mm-hmm. It also requires that we think about culture because there's a constitutive communication approach or theory that says, Organizations do not hold culture, which I happen to agree with because they're inanimate objects, right? It's the humans who make up that organization who create the culture Mm -hmm. and they recreate it 
create and recreate all the time. That's why sometimes there's organizations that have this really fantastic employee-centered customer service focus, and people really say that's their culture. Mm -hmm. But new leadership can come in where employees don't feel good about their contributions, then they're creating and recreating, and the culture shifts, right? Mm -hmm. Naturally. It's much harder and challenging to build positivity back into culture than it is to maintain positivity. And that boils down to the leader really focused and being empathetic and emotionally intelligent, but listening uh, to people and empowering them. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I would absolutely engage, and I usually do in my leadership practice, there is a, um, there are a lot of assessments, as you know, because you have some wonderful assessments. There's uh, Thomas and Kilman, class names, and they are two of the predominant researchers in looking at emotional intelligence data mm -hmm. and creating assessments that are reliable and valid. And they have a short one that is free. And you can have your employees take the assessment. It doesn't take very long. And it will let them know if they're honest and they don't sit and try to outthink the assessment. That's probably true of most assessments. But just their natural go-to habit will show them how they naturally approach conflict. So we know that there are people who are avoiders of conflict. Mm -hmm. We know that there are people who are competers. So regardless, they always want to win. Mm -hmm. We know that there are people who are um, going to allow the conflict, have other people get their way in the conflict. So they're going to, you make the decision, I'm not going to make the decision. There are people who are going to, you you win, I win, we both win, so neither of us gets our way. So instead, we're going to give a little and take a little. And then there are collaborators. Collaboration is the best mm -hmm. because it's really like an integrative thinking model where you're taking the best of each person's approach and coming up with even a better approach mm -hmm. to resolve that conflict. So if I'm a leader, I want to know the people on my team, I want to know how they naturally feel about conflict. Mm -hmm. And that also leads to some of the really core uh, way that we feel about ourselves and our self-esteem related to attachment styles. So then it also gives me an inclination that if somebody is an avoider, that there may be something in their communication in the past or as they were raised that creates stress for them and tension when they're in a situation where there's any tension at all. Mm -hmm. So then I know as a leader, one of my goals is going to be to coach that person to have a voice mm -hmm. and to share their perspective. And then it goes back to the interpersonal part about, okay, Angie, you mean a lot to me. You're really important to this team. Let's look at some ways that we can meet once a week and talk through some uh, role-playing so that we both feel really comfortable handling conflict and bringing up our individual opinions mm -hmm. or perspectives. How does that feel? Are you okay with that? I'm down. I want to practice. You're down. <laughs> because I as, want to practice too. Because as my beha natural behavioral style, when I was younger, I would have been too much of a people pleaser. And my fear mm -hmm. would be not being liked. 
And so, yes. and so that would have been my hindrance and also my mm -hmm. background would have been more traumatic and it would be more mm -hmm. fear of retaliation and not feeling safe and things like that. Yes. And so that impacted me early as a leader mm -hmm. in, in my communication style. Um, my husband was raised in more of a, um, he, he's a C in his behavioral style. He's a little bit more naturally is conflict averse. And then he was raised in a family that just kind of avoided conflict at all costs. And mm -hmm. so it, it, it came to bite him too. So we've both learned that our background and our behavioral styles kind of lend themselves to ways that we like to, you know, handle conflict. And I think utilizing assessments, um, having, cause some people don't know these things like, mm -hmm. and so it's really good to bring this into their awareness and just talk to them about, you know, it, we can build this skill. I, I think that people don't re recognize they're afraid to admit that I'm not good at this. And it's like, there's no shame in not being good with conflict or not understanding how to have difficult conversations, especially if you weren't raised around it in a way where it was modeled for you. It's a, you don't speak that language yet. Yes, a hundred percent. And I feel like, honestly, if uh, well, workplace is a little bit different, but we should have those conversations. I believe in our recruiting and our interviews. Mm -hmm. This is how our team approaches conflict. This is how we approach these things. Um, it's really important to us provide perspective on those to the candidate mm -hmm. you know absolutely so that they can say whoa or yay or i know what i'm getting into and in terms of relationships and you know i have had this conversation the divorce rate is actually starting to decrease in the united states but at one time it was you know 50 percent or greater divorce rate in first marriages and then subsequent you know insanity repeating the same thing over and over with another person but i feel like if if uh, we meaning humans could have these type of conversations prior to making a commitment to really understand attachment styles and how we approach conflict and how we build relationships then while you're still in those dating phases before bonding that you understand the person at a deeper level. It's not just hormones, pheromones, and you're all excited and rah, yeah. and then you don't know how to communicate. It would really save a lot of relationships because we'd be equipped to be able to handle them, right? Mm -hmm. It could be start becoming a norm in our culture, not just in our organizational culture, but really as a society in the United States. And, you know, you're doing that good work one person at a time, one group at a time. But I think it's really important that we know how uh, our partner approaches things. And then you go and use DISC and then you know that, okay, they're a compliance kind of person or they're a social person where they're um, going to be. Yeah. And so then you don't look at them like, why are you so irritating and rub me wrong? You're looking at them saying, hey, this is your personality type. So we know that variety of personality types really is what makes an excellent team mm -hmm. or partnership so if we were all exactly the same how boring would that be you go to the store the only drink you can buy is water and white homogenized milk 
-hmm. and there's no other juices there's no other drinks there's no wine there's no beer there's nothing it's just water and white much nice milk how fun is life going to be how much you can accomplish (laughs) not a lot Mm -hmm. so we should value the differences and help elevate each of us to have a voice but also in that voice to not compete but to care about the other person's opinion as much as our own to find the best outcome yeah i love that how do you think i I have a cute shirt on today that i wore yeah it is it says you're can you read it it says your ego is not your amigo Uh, (laughs) yeah and i learned that from one of my trainings somebody brought it up and i think you know we all have egos but when one of the things that i've noticed is when it's not my amigo when it's not my friend, when it's hurting relationships or keeping me from speaking up or looking dumb or, you know, whenever I'm concerned more about how I look or how is this going to impact instead of the greater good or what's going, how I want, how I care about this person, that's when I have the worst outcomes. Um, Mm -hmm. What are you, what are your thoughts as it relates to how ego fits into our ability to communicate. A hundred percent connection. And it really goes back to listening and it goes back to empathy. We don't have to love a person. We don't even have to really like want to go hang out with the person to have a good relationship with them, to resolve our conflict and to have good interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. Right. So a lot of times uh, as we went through our leadership training there are certain uh, approaches that people have or personalities that are kind of uh they're gonna on the chalkboard to me naturally mm-hmm. right yeah. and so i had to retrain myself to say oh in a way i'm saying to myself so do you think you're better to that than them in my mind mm-hmm. because i find them annoying Mm-hmm. And then I have to also, is exactly what you said, if my insecurity is say, just because I'm different doesn't mean I'm less mm-hmm. because we want people to like us. Mm-hmm. So it's this fine line between really holding others and ourselves in, in a high enough regard, but not um, in a way that we think we're better or that they're better, mm-hmm. that we all have different gifts that we bring to the equation and really becoming adapt at our gifts, Mm -hmm. but also caring about the people. I also noticed that our health and well-being is really important because you and I are extremely busy people. And when I lack sleep because I have to make up that workload somewhere, Mm -hmm. I start getting crunchy. Mm -hmm. And so that might even come across as though I have a big ego because I'm short. I'm not really listening people. I just want to get through the motions. And so it's really important that you are emotionally intelligent, that you're aware of yourself enough to know, okay, I might even need to reschedule this important meeting because I am not on my game today. I'm tired. I don't feel well. I'm physiologically ill. I'm, you know, whatever it is, it's also important to other people mm-hmm. that that ego doesn't get in the way yeah. or the, the way I've been treating myself doesn't get in the way and it appears as though I have a poor ego or that I have a controlling uh, ego. ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that point. I think that one of the things that happens 
is that we just go into reaction mode instead of taking a minute to ask the question in our mind like you did. Do you think you're you're better than that person? Just because you're different does, you know, you it's it's there's a space in between reacting. Yeah. And it's it's really something the more you can create that space and think to yourself or or take a minute to ask yourself a couple of questions, that's when I'm able to check my ego at the door and kind of be like, all right, so I know that just hit you. That was a, you know, that one stung and I'm wondering how we can meet together. Um, and when I, when I'm triggered by something, I really have to check and realize that they may not, most likely they're not trying to trigger you. That's something I need to work on. And that, mm -hmm. that's a huge shift in mindset from they're a jerk to, Wow, that must be something in me that needs healed. Yes, a hundred percent. I think I mean I, people who are really good at metacognition, which we know is thinking about thinking, and I, and not just a, a quick imagined interaction, but really being present with self and others and thinking at a deeper level about them. Uh, we have a tendency to mature in this way faster. For some of us, we can be quite elderly and and we've never spent the time mm -hmm. so i think metacognition is important and i really value that you take so many people through that reflection and that journey because it creates a sense of maturity that not only allows you to uh, understand others and self better which increases uh, quality of life bottom line for organizations etc but it also makes you a happier human because you don't have this internal conflict, like you have to compete with other people to be a happy person, mm -hmm. that you start to find intrinsic value in just how you feel about things and your self-confidence increases when you have a voice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh man, I could just talk about this stuff for days. Right, we I, might have to have round three on another day. Well, I think that one of the other competencies that we talk about is continuous learning. And I think it plugs with both of these really well because even when I was doing a, a communication workshop the other day, I said, I teach this stuff and I haven't arrived. So if I haven't arrived, then I know <coughs> you haven't arrived because until I take my last breath, I have the ability to communicate better. I have the ability to share. I have the I have the ability to improve. Um, I, this isn't. I'm not done yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think that when we're talking about interpersonal skills and we're talking about conflict management and we're talking about technology and the way things are going, this is a skill that I think if anybody wants to improve themselves be able to be promoted, be able to do good in their jobs, mm -hmm. to be able to have effective relationships, have overall happiness and joy. I would say focus on your your interpersonal skills, your conflict management, and your emotional and how you handle your emotions because those emotions will affect all of these things, your decision-making yes. and the ability to understand when you're triggered and hijacked and all those kinds of things. So. Um. Well, just for a second, like you and I have both taught emotional intelligence at the student level. And what are some of the things that, you know, your students say? I wish I'd known this years yeah. ago. Yes. And I, I am especially, it's not purely gender aligned, but 
in our culture and Western culture, and it's true of other cultures as well, but I'm a member of Western culture, so I feel like I can speak to that. I can't speak to every culture, but you know, even from the time that we raise young uh, gender male, you will hear things like, you know, not being as sensitive, don't cry, toughen up. And really we socialize for only showing a few emotions, which could be competition, anger, frustration, mm-hmm. and a lot less focused on the other emotions, which, you know, are substantially um, different and vary across the six primary emotions in emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. But I've had so many of my male students, especially reach out and were like, they've been married for 10 or 20 years and they didn't realize that they were continually showing emotions to their family or at work that were really um, competitive or really controlling. And it wasn't in their heart with that relationship that that's how they wanted Mm -hmm. to show themselves. Mm -hmm. But they stepped back and uh, through their feedback partners receiving feedback on what they were doing well and what they could improve on and really having deeper conversations with people they cared about in their sphere of influence. They realized that how they uh, were dealing with communication and being perceived versus what they hoped to accomplish were different. So they started working on it. And someone said, you know, my marriage improved so much. I'm not in divorce situation or separated or I feel really connected to my children now or I feel like I'm really a part of my team I'm not just managing processes and micromanaging I'm allowing people to grow and our relationships and culture have improved and that's just in a short period of time long-term coaching uh, like the type of work you do is just you know the rewards are incredible Mm -hmm. and it just increases that potential and those outcomes so much absolutely or the you know people who are diminished growing up and they don't have a voice that they start to feel empowered to be part of that conversation uh, is just beautiful it's the most impactful class I think I've ever taught second to interpersonal and conflict management are probably second and third mm-hmm. but emotional intelligence takes all of that and sums it up mm-hmm. so it's really profound yeah so as we look at conflict management, what are your main things? You say read the book, um, Crucial Conversations, but what mm-hmm. are some other things that somebody could do? Take a class, you know, learn yes. to role playing. Yes. What, what other kinds of things do you recommend? Mm-hmm. You have some really great books and resources that I would agree with on your reading list that mm-hmm. you could share. But I, I think also uh, when you take a class or work with uh, with Angie, and I'm not saying this because I'm on with Angie, she's really good at this. Taking a class is important, and this is why. Books are really great to read, and it's going to definitely give you a foundation and advice. But I feel like with conflict management and, and using the right pronouns and Uh, engaging with a different approach at this level. It's so ingrained with us that having role-playing partnership is so important. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I work around highly, highly educated people. You know, they've spent 11 years in college to get to their doctorate degree. And so it's not a lack of learning, but it's a lack of uh, that part of their interpersonal life constructed when they were one to five years old or zero to five. Mm-hmm. affecting their communication and conflict. And, and so I can tell them and they can read a book, but sitting down and role-playing the potential scenarios that could occur when you meet with the person or even ask that person to have a conversation with you is important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And scripting out difficult conversations, one of the things I do with some of my coaching clients is we'll, we, we'll do it as if they have a coach, Right. So if they don't have a class, they have a coach and then we walk through it um, and then we make sure we take the emotion out of it. We bring the facts. We do all, you know, we go through it and then and and it's okay to to say this is difficult for me and I'm just going to read through this here and I'd like to read it. And then at the end, um, please, please allow me to get through it. And when we're at the end, you can ask questions or um Add, add your comments because oftentimes yeah. when somebody knows that somebody feels um, maybe insecure about giving feedback to yes. their new boss or something, then sometimes people will take advantage of that and just kind of jump on them. And yeah. they need to create boundaries for themselves of let me get through this. And then once we're done, you can ask questions, but don't, please don't interrupt while I'm going through yeah. this because it's difficult for me. Would you say that's a fair thing to do? Yes, I do. And I would simply say the way that I'm able to communicate items such as an evaluation is that for my mind to stay focused on what I'm sharing so that hopefully this conversation is impact and growth oriented towards our relationship and our team. Mm-hmm. Let me share, and then we'll open it up for questions and comments, because I would really honor your perspective. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to keep my focus while I'm sharing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same as teaching. It's really difficult to stop mid-sentence and answer a question, then go back to that exact point. So that's that give and take uh, in communication as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, reach out to Angie and she can schedule time with us if we need um, to have some growth in that area from anyone. Yeah, and I mean, you can take many classes that are for non-degree seekings too, where you, oh, yeah. where you can, you know, and your work might even pay for some of those kind of, yeah. if it's communication oriented or, um, so there's a lot of ways and even maybe there's there's um, some edu- some of these courses in your community. Community. Yes. Um, so I don't think it's something that we we are going to get away from. Is what I'm saying. I'm saying it's super important, and it's where our focus needs to be if we want to have healthy relationships, and if we want to have mm-hmm. healthy organizations, and if we want to shift our culture. In mm-hmm. if we don't give people the skills to be successful, it's really hard to expect them to be successful and to, you know, do the things without the skills. Yeah. And I feel like we do a disservice to our employees oftentimes when 
we will give them the skills for the job. We'll send them to training to know how to make the pizza or make the widget or, you know, get the degree or do this. But when it comes to skills that are the essential skills, like communication, improving your emotional intelligence, all these interpersonal skills, those seem to be just like, well, that's not, we, we, we don't have um, They're so lacking, so lacking. I mean, just think about every day when you come in contact and you're the customer or client and you have people working with you, it's so infrequent that somebody connects with you and actually listens and tries to problem solve or come up with ways to solve a bad experience, which is complex, a product that doesn't work, uh, you know, mm -hmm. a lemon of a car, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. If you're not getting the result, people will uh, a lot of times ignore you. I think that's why uh, Costco has such a good reputation in uh, their retail environment. I guess considered wholesale, but retail for most of us, because <laughs> they'll they'll accept a product back without asking questions if you bought it there. And so, really, they're resolving that by taking that type of a cultural statement. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's the same with our relationships: how we treat people. Are you willing to engage with them and solve that problem? Mm -hmm. And there are far too few opportunities to resolve conflicts and people are upset. Mm -hmm. I think it's also created a lot of our tension and in interpersonal relationships in the digital channels and how people treat each other right now. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully that will change. Yeah, I hope so. Because, you know, we, we've got to get, get closer back to caring for one another and, um, you know, I just think about it. If 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 you're to die tomorrow, is is that rant that you did on somebody going to make make you happy that you, that you were able to tear somebody down on social media or yeah. make your point or you know all of these kinds of things? Like sometimes it's like, what are we doing? Um, that kind of comes to our legacy too, which I know we're about out of time, but. Uh, our legacy statement, I don't know about you guys, this probably will sound weird, but when I used to get a hard copy of the newspaper, I like to read the obituaries on Sunday because there were always a lot of them. Mm -hmm. People think that sounds weird, but this is the thing. This is a person's final story of their legacy and what they left. And so I really thought it was interesting to see what people felt were important to them or what their families felt were important to them. And so exactly, um, this is exactly aligned to what you're saying is screaming and yelling and uh, approaching people in a negative space. How does that feed your legacy? What do you want to leave? What do you want people to remember you for? It's important to think about how you treat yourself and others. Yeah. I've been reading The Road to Character right now by David Brooks, and he talks about eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. Mm -hmm. and, and I really think that, you know, improving your, your ability to communicate is going to help you with your eulogy virtues because it is going to be the thing that helps you to connect with others. In the end, that's what we all want is connection. Yes. And if we it's all can't, that matters it's in all the that end, matters. Honestly. It's all that matters in the end. And we learned this 
with COVID, right? That, that a lesson that we all got was what was really important. And now the noise has started up, the treadmills, the, the hamster wheels, everything's <coughs> back going full, full force. But we're starting to forget about what was important. And the important piece is we've got to learn to communicate better. We've got to learn, you know, we can stand up for things that we believe in. We can do those things, but we can do them sensibly and with dignity and with tact and, and still huh. ethically. And listening. So as we know, and I'm sure that I, or at least I hope someday you and I have a deep conversation about this, but as we know that COVID also provides us with some technological advancements for communication, such as Zoom, that people are able to have a more balanced life without commutes. It's helping our environment without as much many cars on the road, vehicles, et cetera, and uh, just overall better health. So when that's possible and people can work hybrid or remote, uh, it's important that we remember that even through the screen, connection with people is so important. I've had students because I primarily teach online or remotely through Zoom, that students want to spend time after class visiting with me or at office hours because they're, they feel really lonely because they've been so isolated for the last few years. So it's important to realize that about our customers, our coworkers, our friends, et cetera. And you can set those boundaries by limiting the time and just say, I have 15 minutes. I care about you. Our relationship is important. Setting the timer, go. And if you set that kind of boundary, you can still go deep with the person digitally mm -hmm. in that amount of time. And it allows you to connect more often. I love that tip. Because I think people think they can't connect over Zoom, but actually you can connect. It's not going to be as good as a hug or having that yeah. direct eye contact, but but sometimes it may be the thing that the person needs. And we, the Surgeon General, did just um, you know has mentioned that we have an actual loneliness epidemic, and that it's mm -hmm. worse on our health than smoking and drinking, and it it kills. And mm -hmm. it, it's super bad on our health. And as human, based, or one of our basic human needs is to connect. And um, this com communicating and understanding and, and figuring out what people need and is, is so critical in making that shift so that people feel connected and not alone. Is there a difference between solitude and loneliness? Yeah. I appreciate solitude. Sometimes I like yes. to be alone. But yes. being lonely is a different feeling than and not having any connection or feeling like you matter. Those that's a different thing than having alone time and having solitude. Absolutely. Well, being alone in solitude is self choosing. Mm -hmm. Not having relationships or feeling like nobody cares about you is not self choosing. Mm -hmm. Although there are uh, ways that we can communicate with others so that they understand our need for that, which I think often we don't do as well, mm -hmm. express our needs to other people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a skill that we could all work to improve. I think we're good at, our brain is naturally good at what it doesn't like. We know what we don't want, but we're not very good at communicating what we do want. Yeah. And what we need. Which would be, oh, sorry about that, Angie. Go ahead. I think that's also important when we're interviewing for jobs or teams 
is to express our needs. I need to have this. This is important to me in a team or a career and setting yourself up for success Mm -hmm. rather than just looking at a position title or the money. Mm -hmm. Going deeper on that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we could do an interview class uh, and talking about expressing our needs and what's important. Uh, That would be really fun. And also Maslow's hierarchy. So when we get to self-actualization, what does that actually look like and how can we go back and forth? Absolutely. Because you can be on top of Maslow's hierarchy one minute and then just like the game of shoots and ladders, you can be on the bottom in one day, it can all mm-hmm. shift. Another thing that you brought up today is one of the concepts that we talk about a lot. Um, you talked about um, imposing, basically, needing, telling people they need to do this or should. And um, those are that language is imposing, and it doesn't actually motivate people at all. In fact, it often demotivates them when we are imposing. And so those come down to our basic psychological needs, the competence or we we want connection um well we need competence autonomy and relatedness relatedness is the connection piece the autonomy is that uh, um, agency or free will to be able to make the choice and not have people telling you Mm -hmm. unless or giving you unsolicited advice um it's different when somebody asks for advice or comes for coaching but when we just start telling it Mm -hmm. actually demotivates people and then training them, giving them the competency, like the competency of building their interpersonal skills, bring, bringing that competency up, bringing their conflict management skills up. You're right. You can't read a book on it and do it. You, mm. It's like learning and doing are two different things. You have to be able to practice and have feedback and have people uh, walk you through it and, and do it over and over and put yourself through those uncomfortable situations. Kind of like when I was training students for the operating room, we didn't just have them read on how to do a procedure. We did the procedures yeah. and they would yeah. practice them over and over so that when the real time comes, then it's then they, they have comfort in that, mm-hmm. that phase. And a lot of people are kinesthetic learners too, mm-hmm. right? So they need to touch it and fill it and practice it mm-hmm. to build their confidence. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very important. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, what's something that you wish that you would have known when you started your career as it relates to these skills, conflict management and interpersonal skills? All of them. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. So part of it is uh, growing up and really becoming a young career person and the uh, mid to late 80s was really quite different than it is today. Mm-hmm. So uh, even just having a voice and being able to betray that and own my feelings and how I viewed the world without having to emulate a certain model in business, mm-hmm. uh, I think is really important. Having the power to be able to empower others, because as you know, the late 80s and early 90s were really about that more authoritative authoritative model of leadership as opposed to uh, really a transformational, democratic, some of those tendencies. Mm -hmm. 
where you want to empower others and that helps you be empowered. Mm -hmm. I didn't see it that way. So it creates insecurity and it also creates uh, your image or how you are perceived by others in your relationships, professionally and personally, as somebody other than who you are, because you can't show your authentic self, mm -hmm. or at least you don't feel like you, you could mm -hmm. or can. Uh, I feel like I have um, probably hurt so many people's feelings over my young life before I was more aware of lost friendships and relationships mm -hmm. because I didn't know how to, I didn't have the skill set or the knowledge or maturity mm -hmm. to wow. build other people up in the same way because you have a threat that you think if I build everybody up too much that it's a, it could potentially lead to a diminishing of self. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've, we feel like we have to compete with people. Um, and then after a while you realize that doesn't matter. That's not where the value is. Mm -hmm. So when I say everything, I mean, every area of emotional intelligence, I wish I knew better. Mm -hmm. And actually at a younger age, caring about those types of things. Yeah, I think it's important. I really feel happy with a lot of the tendencies I'm seeing around millennial leadership and some just Gen Z leadership popping up because generational communication is really fascinating. And you look at right now, we're at a really interesting time in the workforce where we have four generations working together and almost a fifth and five or seven years. So we've got boomers who are still working, sadly. Maybe if they love it, it's not sad, but <laughs> a lot of boomers financially are still working. And then, you know, boomers went through really difficult economic times and created that Gen X work, work ethic that it's like, it's not a work-life balance at all. It's a workaholic mindset that you and I are part of. And then, uh, you don't want your children to have that. So it's all, all cyclical and millennials are really about work-life balance, which I think is really good for older generation workers and Gen, Gen Z are really uh, focused on less is more. And so you don't have to have a lot of uh, materialistic rewards or extrinsic rewards as much as intrinsic rewards. Now we know everything in society, it's like it has to push way out to the extreme to come back to the middle. Mm -hmm. But I really like, uh, personally, my bias is I like a good work ethic, but I like it combined with work-life balance and seeing people be fulfilled and have self-awareness as well mm -hmm. and not be a slave to the work. Because I think that, and it'll be interesting now that we're at Gen Alpha, who are in uh, elementary school and starting junior high, and to see what that flavor is going to look like being raised by millennials. Mm -hmm. I feel like they might be more emotionally intelligent because we're all doing this good work. Yeah, I hope, my so. hope at that, least. That's, that's a dream. That's a wish, <laughs> I think. Yeah. You know, with but it's the, really. There's a gap as far as technological and the 
<clears throat> and the AI and all the, there, there's definitely, we have to be intentional, intentional, mm -hmm. um, if that's what we want to create. And, and I think, I think some schools are integrating it, um, at younger ages. Um, and I think the more that we as family members can talk about our emotions and, um, teach inner, good interpersonal skills and conflict management. Do you remember when we, this was an exercise that we did in the complete leader program where we had to pick some topic, um, whether it was gun control, abortion, some mm -hmm. hot, some hot topic. And we would have to find somebody that was opposite of us on that topic. And then we'd have to mm -hmm. have a conversation with them about why, without getting defensive, without getting ugly, with just asking questions. That exercise was so powerful for me. Um, and I remember I was actually paired with Ron Price. <laughs> I was paired with Ron Price. And oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I didn't, um, I didn't feel like I needed to prove my point or anything, but I was trying to really articulate my point uh, for why my beliefs were what they were. And he went with his. And, and it just showed me that I think oftentimes we get so defensive because we think we need to be right. But really, when you talk to somebody, you both really do agree on some really fundamental things. Mm -hmm. And that exercise, I think, is one that people could practice in the workplace. I think they could practice it at home. And and not to just get defensive and tell somebody they're stupid. Like, that is not an <laughs> argument. That's not an argument. That's not even, I mean, get better at, you know, the debate thing, right? Like, it, be better at, if you if you want to debate something, understand the other side just as well as you understand your own side. And and what are your thoughts on that? that oh, I'm like, preach it, sister. So the, uh, the fallacy of ad hominem is when you attack the person rather than the argument, which is what we see a lot, especially in digital called? space. And ad hominem, A-D and then H-O-M. I-N-E-N. I think that's right. And hard to spell in your head like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the fallacies of argumentation. And it's just that uh, we've seen this a lot in politics. You attack the person and call them names like you're a toddler mm -hmm. rather than looking at the argument. And I love that you brought up the commonalities because we are all very close together on some core, most of us, not everyone, but on some core perspective items out on the fringes is where we differ but we can learn a lot by learning the other perspective so I would tell my students in speech and debate which you know I coached speech and debate for years and years and competed as an undergraduate so I really encourage everybody if they're listening to uh, enroll their children in speech and debate programs if there is one at their school Mm -hmm. Even if they're terribly afraid of public speaking like my mother did, because it really uh, is valuable. You pull topics, you have to learn a lot about various issues in the world. And then when you go to tournaments or practicing in class, you pull affirmative or negative. So if you're given a, a topic such as uh, we need to have devices in our cars that uh, uh kill our cell phone ability for our cell phone to text mm -hmm. and drive as an example you have to be able to argue for that and argue against that depending on which you draw mm -hmm. and so you become really well informed and then i remind them 
because you feel really strongly about something, and if somebody opposes it and they share their perspective, it doesn't mean you have to change your worldview. It means that you're becoming educated to either think about your topic in a deeper way, your perspective, or it will help you understand your perspective that you have, and you still might feel that way. But by closing off, then uh, your adaptability and ability to relate to a lot of people is diminished. Mm -hmm. And so you can tell it seems like uh, that's so important in life. It's very important being a parent to be able to do that. It's very important as a leader to be able to do that because very few people will ever agree with you exactly. Yeah, for sure. So, and being ad adaptable and flexible is so important. Yeah, it's, it's a superpower. Being flexible, I really think it is a superpower. Um, I love that you brought up putting kids in, in speech and debate and, and actually pushing them outside of their comfort zone. Even if it's not comfortable, it is a good thing mm -hmm. for them to do. The other thing I would say is theater. That's another thing. I, I, I've seen it with both of my kids where they were a little, they were shy, a little bit timid, but once they've been through it and they've done it enough and they realized they didn't die up there, they actually... I mean, this weekend we had one of our sons ended up singing karaoke at my other son's graduation. Oh. And he's he's a kid that never would have done that. He He's super introverted, but he's built skills and he's built confidence that, that a couple of years ago he would never have had if he didn't have the consistent, you know, building him up, teaching him, letting him fail, let, you know, letting him do all the things. And, and I think that just both speech, debate, theater, all those kinds of of classes help people to in, in a low stakes environment, you know, where they're learning and they're learning how to argue and they're learning how to, um, to have different opinions and their opinions differ from their parents. And they, that's, yeah. you know, the kids are starting to realize that they don't believe all the things their parents believe. And that's scary for some parents, but in reality, like if you raise them to be a, a thinking human being, you want them to be thinking things and questioning things. Yes, right? Or the world would still be flat. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. And so, and so we wouldn't go across the sea. We wouldn't see other places. Absolutely. It's that simple. And, and really a matter of uh, language we use being important to, I think, about children and math and there's I, I have it all the time because I teach communication students saying, I'm just not good at math. And I have traditional students and I've had students up to 80 years old coming back to get their degree uh, for a sense of accomplishment about that. And they'll say, I'm just not good at math. And I, we need to be able to reframe it just like we reframe our self-awareness, how we talk about ourselves and others, because math is very similar to a foreign language. And if you learned French in high school or Spanish and you didn't speak continually or write or read in it, you're going to lose it. You won't remember it. It's the same with math. Mm -hmm. and so it's that dedication to learning that foreign language. And so, yes, some of us have more gifts or prone uh, to enjoy things more, but that doesn't mean that we're stupid and we can't do math. We can't communicate. Mm -hmm. We can't write. Mm -hmm. We can do anything. We might just be at different levels, but it requires that we change our language around that. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the reasons there's been such a big push for females in STEM because they start believing about that age of puberty that they're not good at math or science, right? And that that words that we've used over the last 10 or 15 years to change that story and that narrative mm-hmm. has increased women working in STEM. Mm-hmm. And it's also increased more males working in teaching and nursing and meta- a surgical assistant, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're changing some of that language. We can also change our language when we approach people and get rid of that you language we spoke about mm-hmm. and make it uh, more inclusive to hear perspective. Mm-hmm. And less should and less need. You need, you should right? The imposing language. Because none of us actually like it, but we have no problem doing it to others. <laughs> I mean, who likes to have somebody tell you what you should and shouldn't be doing and what you need to be doing? None of us, but we are so quick to do it to other people. And so mm-hmm. when we catch it, one of the things we can say is, I'm working on this right now, and I'm trying to get better, and uh, I'm trying to change some old habits that I've picked up along the way. Um, and, and being vulnerable enough to share that you don't, you know, you're not perfect and you're, you're trying to get better. That's a right mm-hmm. there. That's going to help in interpersonal skills too. If, if somebody knows that you're, you're trying and you recognize some of the behaviors that you've had, I think that goes a long way. Yeah, for sure. And that's back to self-awareness and relationship awareness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And continuous learning. Get some classes. Do some yes. role playing. Um, Seek out Angie and Rock. Yeah, find a find a you call them a feedback mentor. Uh, get a coach. Do whatever you can to actually practice the skills. Um, maybe you have somebody in your workplace that actually is really good at it. Um, maybe you have a, a Bennett in your. Maybe you have an ombuds person in your. You take advantage of people that are good at this and this is their skill set. Um, when you have an opportunity, I know you're speaking for the Idaho Nonprofit uh, Center here soon on conflict management, correct? Yes, I'm excited. September. Yeah. And so, like, when there's opportunities for communication, I would say take every single one that you can. Mm-hmm. Because we, we've not arrived here. Uh, uh-huh. this, this is a place that we need to continue learning and we need to continue practicing because learning and doing are, like we said, two different things. Uh-huh. It's so interesting, too, because you imagine, what if you and I live 20 to 25 more years, as an example, and think about how far we've grown in the last 20 to 25 years. Right. So... It'll be interesting to look back even with our continued growth, as you said, none of us are perfect. Mm-hmm. We're always a work in progress. And so imagine looking back and then wondering how you didn't know other things. Mm-hmm. So being a lifelong learner is so important. And there's a lot of research. You're probably even more familiar than me being in a medical field in your life, but that uh, the longevity of seniors in terms of having a purpose and learning, uh, their longevity is extended when they do. Mm-hmm. And when they no longer have a purpose or a learning and growing, they usually uh, correlates with a shortened lifespan mm-hmm. after retirement. 
Yep. So there's also a physical benefit. There absolutely is a physical benefit to the lifelong learning and knowing your purpose. Um, I've read some on the, like the blue zones and centurions, people who are living over a hundred and they have nine things. They call them the power nine, but one of them is purpose and, um, and then diet related, exercise related, all the kinds of things. But yeah, this is, this is good for everybody from, we've talked from kindergarten. <laughs> we've went from age five, uh, and below, right. All the way up to centurions in oh this. My God. and we covered all generations and, uh, Oh my gosh, you and I never have a dull moment <laughs> together. <laughs> so, um, if you are interested in taking a class, I know that uh, Boise State has some, and like Michelle said, they are online. We have some at Idaho State. Um, we have little, we have regular little workplace micro courses, things. Just reach out to people and find out and try to find somebody who's a communication mentor. I really feel mm -hmm. like this is this is the future. Um, when we work on communicating better, we're all going to have a better experience and. I'm just so grateful for your time to come on the podcast today and share your wisdom because you have so much to tap into and I only have so much time to, to take, but I hope that, I hope this has inspired people to our listeners to really become lifelong learners as it relates to communication and not have any shame about the lack of communication skills that they do have. Because there's nothing to be embarrassed about if you're if you don't feel like you're a good communicator right now. Exactly. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank I you. I always feel uplifted and wonderful when I'm around you, and love to chat. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I I'm just I'm just so so pleased that I got to have these moments with you, and I I hope that it's really beneficial to our listeners, and I hope that. Um, people will reach out to you or to us if they are looking for improving those skills. So thanks so much, thanks. Michelle. Did you know that Black River offers a learning management system with over 10,000 development topics? The Leader U Learning Management System is an affordable option that empowers organizations to manage and curate in-house learning development opportunities. The built-in calendar and scheduling system can be used to coordinate compliance courses such as HR Respectful Workplace, and IT cybersecurity, or lunch and learns on topics such as motivation, self-leadership, and leading more effective meetings. At Black River, we are dedicated to providing a learning solution that focuses on engaging employees in their own self and team development. Our clients use the Leader U Learning Management System to remove barriers through accessible and self-paced micro-learning content, save time with the centralized and automated training assignments, promote more meaningful team discussions, issue certificates of completion and track development efforts, and enhance and simplify onboarding efforts. Contact us for more information on our learning management system at info at blackriverpm.com. 